Good afternoon. Did you all drink plenty of coffee and tea? Because this is the worst hour. It's after lunch and... Uh, I hope that you can stay awake for this. We're going to talk about parental attitudes and goals. All right, so before we start, let me pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Would you please instruct us? And Father, help us to know these things. And I pray, Father, that your people would not just feel convicted, but would be encouraged by the fact that your word has all that we need in order that we can raise our children effectively. So help us to that end. Help us as we learn about ourselves. Help us as we learn to help others. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Now again, I want to emphasize that um, we're not just talking about the, these general truths about parenting, but the things that we're going to look at are the things you're going to encounter and that you need to understand as you counsel parents with their children. Let me tell you a story. I remember one really cold winter day. I was in my office and my phone rang, and I answered it, and it was a desperate, desperate woman on the other end of that line. It was my wife, Becca. And she said this to me, Honey, we have a problem. I said, What's that? I don't want to be these boys' mother anymore. (laughs) Now, I have her permission to tell that story, but she says to me sometimes, sometimes people look at me like, oh, you're that woman. And sometimes people look at me and say, oh, my, I'm glad someone else thinks that way. And I know, I know that many of you have felt that way. And because many parents are... Because many parents are desperate. They're seeking expert help in their attitudes and their goals. So I want you to turn today to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now, to me, guys, do you remember when you were kids and you got a a magnifying glass and you'd go down to the park on the bleachers and you would um, burn your initials into the into the bleachers or kill the spider, burn the spider up that's running across the bleacher seats and stuff. The, to me, Ephesians 6.4 takes all of what the Bible says about raising kids and concentrates it like that magnifying glass does to the, to the sun's rays. It really concentrates. So everything we find here can be found in the rest of Scripture. Um, let me also mention this real quick before we look at that. Many years ago, Jay Adams wrote a book called Christian Living in the Home, and he made a statement that I thought was extraordinary, and that was this. He said, we've got to stop thinking of Christian homes. Just stop even. Get that concept out of your head. I mean, what makes your, what makes your home different from your unbelieving neighbors? Do you have a steeple on your home? You're a Christian home? He says, what we need to start thinking about is Christian living in the home. Now, when you have that attitude, Christian living in the home, then the whole Bible opens up to you and tells you how to live in your home. And so that even goes with with parenting. And what we're going to look at is some very concentrated things, but don't forget that the whole of Scripture is going to say something to you about the way you parent. If we talk about Christian living in the home, or if we see the home as another venue where we live out our our discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Sermon on the Mount is going to say a lot to me about, about me as a dad. But what we, right now we want to concentrate on this passage that really brings everything together in terms of parents and their children. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now today, we want to first of all talk about parental attitudes and goals. What are some unbiblical types of parental attitudes? This is where we begin since attitude guides actions. All right? What are some of the things you're going to face in your life, and as you try to help others, well, one is the impatient parent. 
Many of us are impatient. And so we have attitudes like this. Why me? Why me? We go to church faithfully. We read the Bible at home. We talk about God. Why is this child a problem? Well, this attitude basically misunderstands the orientation of a child. Proverbs 22.15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now when it says folly is bound up in the heart of the child, it's not talking about the fact that your children stuff dandelions up their noses. Okay, that's not what folly means. When you read the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, folly means living in a God-created world as if there's no God. It's, it's living a life that leads to death. That's what folly means. And the Bible says folly, living life without reference to God, is bound up in the heart of a child. They're born depraved. We've had six children, and every one of them came out of the womb shaking their fist at God. They're born that way. Remember, we're not sinners because we sin. We're sin we sin because we're sinners. We're born with a bent against God. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Why me? Because why is this happening to me? Because folly is bound up in the heart of a child. That's why. You've got to understand the basic orientation or the basic have a basic understanding of children. I have a right to a problem free child. Now no one say that out loud, but that's what they're thinking. Again, this shows a basic misunderstanding of trials and maturity. Right? Why is my kid giving me so much hassle? Why is he continually disobeying? Well, have you ever thought of this? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings because sufferings produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Romans 5, 1 and 2. What, what are we talking about there? Trials bring maturity. James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. Why? Because it strengthens your faith. Right? And so that includes our homes. There's trials at home. We have children that are going to give us grief. But you can either lose hope over that or say, this is God's means of helping me grow. This is God's means of sanctifying me. Listen, you know what? I thought I was a pretty patient, pretty cool kind of guy until Calvin was born. And then I found out I wasn't patient at all. Right? And so um, we're not going to have problem-free children. Why? Because folly is bound up in their heart and because their trials in our lives are intended to help us um, in our growth. This child has no right to bother me. Now listen, we often discipline not because of some biblical goal, but because we're irritated. And when we, we discipline because we're irritated... That's what we're saying. You come home every night and turn on the television. If the children start getting boisterous and having fun, you discipline them. Why? Because you're irritated with them. Right? That child has no right to bother me. I have earned the right now to sit here and not have anything bother me. All right? That's an attitude that forgets that God has called us to live for Him and for others. All right, we are to live a life for others and not for ourselves. Well, I just have a short fuse. My dad had a short fuse. I have a short fuse. I can't help it. I've always been that way. Then grow. All right, grow. God commands you to put off the habits of the old life and to put on the habits of the new, and that includes irritable, hot-tempered anger. Colossians chapter 3 says this, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I cannot, I must not, make an excuse. That's just the way I am. Well, then change. Grow. 
walk in your progressive sanctification. If you've got a problem with your anger, then you need, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, to deal with it. Don't use that as an excuse as to why you're failing with your children. Your home should not be an emotional powder keg where the children are walking around hoping that the that it doesn't explode, not knowing when it's going to explode. All right? Oftentimes the impatient parent forgets that the child needs training. You often forget that the child's hands, brain, and feet have never performed that task before. I've seen parents get angry at their kids because they just couldn't do it right and they push them aside and do it themselves. Children need to be taught. All right? They're not born with everything already in them other than folly, but right? they need to be taught. You need to be patient and teach them. Then there's the passive parent. Now this too is a dangerous attitude since it too contributes to making an angry, resentful child. If you want an angry child, don't do anything. You know why? Violence is born in the human heart. And if you want violence in anybody, you don't have to beat them around. Just don't do anything, and they'll f- come, their violence will come to full flower. So be a passive parent. And this is what a passive parent says. Well, it's no big deal. It's just a passing stage. That's the way a 2-year-old, a 6-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 16-year-old acts. It's just a passing stage. When you take that attitude, you excuse sin, which God does not allow. Now, some things are like that. I can remember coming home and my little girl Lydia had dragged out all the pans, was banging them around and it was all over the kitchen floor. And I just was kind of like, what is going on here? And my wife very graciously, kindly reminded, honey, that's what two-year-olds do. They pull the pans out. Okay? Yeah, that is true. And you know what? A 16-year-old does start thinking independently and he won't agree with you all the time. That's normal for that stage. But if sinful behavior and attitudes manifest themselves, then they must be confronted and not excused. When the experts say to you, well, 16-year-olds are going to be rebellious. That's just the way they are. How do they know that? Well, of course, they look at all these 16-year-olds who are rebellious. Let me ask you, who comprised the sample? You know what they are? 99.9% of that sample are unregenerate 16-year-olds who do not operate by the Holy Spirit. And as one of my mentors in counseling said, you don't determine right and wrong by counting noses. Many other 16-year-olds might be rebellious, but that doesn't mean you're going to be rebellious. That doesn't mean that you have the right to be rebellious. All right? Here's one. This is a favorite of of teachers that have your kids. My kid wouldn't do that. My kid wouldn't do that. That is to say, basically you're saying, my child has escaped the curse of sin and is not corrupt nor liable to temptation. Right? No. No. Not at all. That's not true. And you know it. You know that. But you know what? For example, teachers always hear that. They're called in, you're called in because your your child has done something, right? And my child would do that. No, no, it must be it must be the kid who's sitting behind him. He's the reason why he did that. Or it must be you. You've only been teaching for two years. You don't know how to handle kids. It's never my kid's fault. Boy, I wish my dad had that attitude when I was growing up. <laughs> Man, I would come home and say, the teacher got mad at me. Instead of him saying, well, why did she do that? He would always say, what did you do? <laughs> I am innocent in this prospect here. What do you mean, what did I do? So my kid wouldn't do that. That's what a passive parent often says. And you're going to hear those sorts of things. All right? I know it's wrong, but isn't it cute? We've been conditioned to this by television, where parents are fools and children are wise. All right? And I'm not here to cut down everybody. I'm not here to say stop watching television. I'm not here to say that... Disney is a purveyor of the satanic doctrine. But let's face it. (laughs) Let's face it. So much of what we call wholesome entertainment has parents as idiots and the children as the wise ones, right? And we've been conditioned to that. But the biblical pattern is, if it's wrong, confront it. You know, I mean, just things like this. 
I could tell you stories. With six kids, I am full of these stories. Here's Jans. Jans is number three, the third boy. And I was really mad at him one day. And I said, Jans, how many times have I told you not to do that? He looks at me and goes, five? (laughs) Right? Now, what do you think I want to do at that moment? Man, I'm just like, oh, man, we got to keep it together. I just want to laugh so hard. Oh, man. Right? Okay. By the way, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have lost my temper like that either. We'll get into that later, but that was the wrong way of dealing with it. Nevertheless, it, it, it may be cute and it may be funny now. It won't be that way in two or three more years. And people wonder, you know, why is my kid doing this? Because you were laughing about it two years ago when they were three. Now when they're five and off to kindergarten, it isn't cute anymore. All right? Or this one. They're too young to learn. Often that's an excuse not to confront and teach. Now that doesn't mean an elaborate lecture, but you can still teach. You don't teach your children to leave the stone, the stove alone by giving them an, a lecture on the way electricity works, right? But he can still learn. He can still learn. Too often he's too young to learn produces a child who refuses to learn. Right? Children are not too young to learn. Here's what I've found, and some of you who've had children know all about this, right? He's too young to learn. You walk into the room and that little toddler jumps. Why? Because he knows he's doing something he's not supposed to be doing. He already knows that. And too often, we don't give kids enough credit. We don't give kids enough credit. They know a whole lot more than we give them credit for. And so don't use that excuse, he's too young to learn, okay? Or this one, I hear this all the time, I don't know what I'm going to do with this kid. No one can handle him. Oh, really? What did you learn the first week of your counseling training? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says what? I'll wait. Except what's common to man. What do you mean God gave you more than... God hasn't given you more than He can handle. He's given you a child that's going to throw you into dependence on God. And He's going to stretch you. But He's not more than you can handle. You can't say that because then you're saying, God gave me too much. And God doesn't do that. All right? So those are some unbiblical parental attitudes that you will face... In your life and the lives of others. And you've got to have an ear tuned to listening for attitudes. Okay? You've got to tune that ear to listen for attitudes. They're not going to come out and say, I want a problem-free child. But as you listen to them, you're hearing it. Okay? So remember that attitudes um, direct the way we act. Attitudes are going to form the way we respond to our children. And so have an ear for that. Try to understand that. What are some biblical types of parental attitudes? All right, here's one. Count trials, raising sinners, a thing of joy. This is the part of God's process to bring you to maturity. Listen, raising children brings aggressive endurance. It brings aggressive endurance and the ability to keep on even though you may not see the changes you want to see. It produces aggressive endurance. And First Peter, I'm sorry, James chapter 1, Count it all joys, my brothers, when you fall into various trials because you know that it produces perseverance, right? And that perseverance then increases your faith. And then verse 5, what does it say? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God. And children are the instruments by which we are thrown upon God. Right? I can remember sitting in our kitchen with Becca, putting my head on the table and saying, are we doing anything right? Well, maybe not. But we better ask God for help. You know, 
Um, it's an opportunity to ask God for wisdom. It's an opportunity to ask God for wisdom. Remember, it produces aggressive endurance. You know what? Raising kids is the minor leagues when it comes to endurance in the face of trial. We've got to learn it then because there may come things into our lives that require endurance. If we haven't learned it with our children, it's not suddenly going to become something that's going to magically appear in our lives. All right? Aggressive endurance, the ability to keep on asking God for wisdom, especially when you see no change. We've got to have this attitude. This is key. I'm going to come alongside in concern and love to see the child's problem in order to help him find biblical solutions and to change for God's glory and the child's benefit. That's what that's the attitude I have to see. I'm going to come alongside in concern and love. And I'm going to find answers to your problems. The Bible is, has a Redeemer who has come to save them and to give them what they need in order to live a godly life. And I'm the one who has to bring them on that path. That's how you look at your children. That's how you have to see them. All right? Hebrews 12.10 talks about the fact that God disciplines us so that we share in his holiness. And that's what I'm after, you see. I think that's important. I remember one of my mentors in biblical counseling, Pastor Bill Goode, one of the granddaddies of biblical counseling, once said, you can be a top sergeant who just crushes your kids, or you can be a coach who comes alongside them and helps them. Right? They're sinning because they need God and they need His answers, and you're there to help them navigate life. Okay. Now note in verse 4 of Ephesians 6 that God charges fathers with leading children to God's goal. God charges fathers with this responsibility. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, that is not to say that mothers are unimportant. Because how many parents are involved in verses 1 through 3? You can look if you want. How many parents are involved in verses 1 through 3? Both. Children obey your parents. And fathers have to remember that this is delegated authority. You do not have absolute authority in your home. You have delegated authority. You need to communicate that. You are not exercising your own authority, but ministering God's authority in your home. And when you do that, Junior knows that you exercise authority not because you're bigger and stronger and faster. And he will obey when he becomes bigger and stronger and faster. Unless you communicate that, you lose them. I can think of a guy that I knew who was, um, who frankly abused his family. He would sit in his living room with guns. He was a hunter and he'd sit in his living room with guns and threaten his family. Right? Well, do you think he got compliance? Sure he did. But guess what happened when his son became bigger and stronger and faster than him? He didn't do that anymore. In fact, he lost everything. Right? You can get compliance, but you haven't accomplished anything. Here's the point. You've got to, you've got to always let your children know that you're exercising delegated authority, that the authority has been given you for God's purposes, not for your purposes. Okay? Do you see how this all dovetails? If I come alongside my children to give them God's answers to the problems of life, and I'm telling them I'm, I've been given authority to accomplish God's purposes, not that I get my way, do you think that's going to have an effect? Absolutely. And listen, dads are ultimately responsible for raising the children. And men, that should find practical, practical um, expression in our lives. I've told the guys in our church for years, when it comes time for parent-teacher conferences, go. 
Mom just doesn't go. Who signs the report cards? You ought to sign them. You ought to be interested in that, right? Um, you ought to be the one going to the school and saying to the teacher, look, if my child is a problem, you let me know. I'm here to help you. Men, you need to do that. You need to do those sorts of things. Men, we have to lead when it comes to raising our children, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Now, why does God single out dads? Well, we can look at some things, I think, because fathers tend to neglect the children. Fathers tend to neglect the children. I mean, face it, mom's with them all day long, and you come home, and, and frankly, too many men think they've earned the right to be lazy. They've worked hard all day, and they want, they think they've got the right to kip, kick up their feet at the end of the day and not be bothered by anything or anyone. Of course, he forgets that mom's been dealing with them all day, and that is work. Men do not have the right to be lazy. God has given them the responsibility. Men tend to neglect their children. I mean, I understand that. You know what? I get that. Because you're busy with so many things. Little kids, they're, you know, okay. Those are men, you're responsible, according to Ephesians 6 4. And it fits the biblical teaching on leadership. It fits the biblical teaching on leadership. Men are the leaders in the home. Therefore, the buck stops with them. Now, that does not mean that moms don't do anything, but it means, Dad, you've got to be overseeing the whole process. All right? When my, all right, when my wife says, I don't want to be these boys' mother anymore, all right, I've got a responsibility. You know what it is? I have a responsibility to find out what's happening, what's going on, what are you struggling with, how can I help you, what are the kids doing, how, do, how am I going to address that, right? Um, all those things. You're the head of the home, and you're the one ultimately responsible. You set the parameters. You are the one who um, has to be leading in this whole area of raising kids. We have delegated that, and women, please do not misunderstand me. I have no idea what I would do without my wife, okay? You spend most of the time with the kids. You know them probably better. But we are supposed to be, the men are supposed to be um, the the leaders. That doesn't mean discipline the kids, please. Not discipline the kids because that's what you're supposed to do when I'm not around. It's... Okay, what kind of discipline is appropriate? What kind of struggles are you facing, Mom? What can we do about that? Right? Um, So it fits the biblical teaching on leadership. Now, what I want to talk about now is what I think is one of the most important things when it comes to raising children. I cannot emphasize that enough. When we talk about the goal we have in raising our children... This one thing alone transformed my approach to my kids. This part right here is absolutely, completely essential in raising our kids. So I I don't think I've emphasized that enough, have I? This is absolutely essential, okay? And I'm not kidding you. When I got a handle on this part, on a goal... It transformed everything we did with our kids. So let's dive into that. The Bible says here in Ephesians 6, 4, bring them up. Bring them up. It's self-disciplined godliness. There's, there's the command of this verse. It's in an active voice. That is, parents must assume control. This child will not come up alone. He's not going to get there alone. A child left to himself, what? Brings disgrace to his mother. All right? Parents have to assume control. It's an imperative. This is something you must do. You don't have a choice. You must raise them up. It's in the present tense, which means continuous action. You keep at it. You've got to keep at it. Now, what are some reasons for failure with our children here? 
Let me give you two reasons why we often fail in raising our children. Number one, we do not have a goal. We don't know where we're going. We don't have a goal in our minds to which I'm saying that's where I want them to be when we're done. That's not even in our thinking. Or we have the wrong goals. Well, it's not really just that we don't have a goal. We don't have the right goal, and we have goals that are wrong. There are functional goals. All right? So let's talk about that. What are some wrong goals? What are some wrong goals? I want them to be a success. Well, what's the problem with that? What does success mean? What does success mean? Wrong goal, right? Because typically then we're looking at what the world means by success. And that's dangerous because, and I love my country, but we Americans have some of the most ungodly thinking. And one is, be what you want to be. Right? You can achieve any of your dreams. I want them to be a success. I want them to make a good living. I don't want you to dig ditches like I've had to dig. I want you to be able to go and get a job that will be a good job and give you good money. You know, I thank God for a father. My dad was a pastor. We and and I grew up in Wisconsin. And it was all dairy farms, right? All the people in our church were dairy farmers. And my dad said to my brother and I very clearly, "Don't think that if you um if you're preaching or teaching or you have an office job or something like that, then you're better than these folks who have to milk cows. Because God says, all labor done for him is good. Don't be afraid to work with your hands. And you know how he lived that out? When he got to the end of um, his pastoral ministry, he wanted to go in evangelistic ministry. But that takes time to be able to make connections and go places. So here's my father in his mid-60s trying to get another kind of a ministry going, mopping floors at Piggly Wiggly on the third shift, right? I don't have to tell my kids, I want you to make a good living. I don't want you to have to do what I had to do, okay? That's a wrong goal. Here's one that probably is one of the most common goals, someone who won't embarrass me. All right? Now you say, I've never said that. Maybe not, but that's the way you operate. And by the way, that's what most of us in vocation Christian ministry really struggle with. When you're done preaching and you're standing at the door shaking hands with someone and your son comes up and tries to get your attention and you don't pay attention to him and he kicks you in the shin in front of everybody that's there, right? I'm mad, and he's going to pay. Why? Because he just embarrassed me in front of all these people. But, you know, it's not just us pastors. It's it's everyone. And they get on their kids. Why? Because they've merely embarrassed them. That's not to excuse the sin of the child. I'm going to deal with kicking in the shin. But why? Because I'm concerned about him? Or because I'm embarrassed by what he just did in front of all these people? All right? I want a child who doesn't embarrass me. Or I want a child who doesn't irritate me. Okay, well, I guess you don't want children then. (laughs) All right? Um, Or this one, I want them to be like me. I turned out okay. All right, these are some of the wrong goals that we have. What's God's goal for our children? Um... Trying to see if we have enough time to read through all these. Okay. Genesis 2.24. Here's part of what we need to see. Genesis 2.24. For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and will cleave to his wife and they will become one flesh. Leave father and mother. I have a positive goal of independence. I want my children not to be dependent. I want them to be independent of me. I need to bring them up in such a way that they're going to be independent. So that's where I'm headed. Here's part of my goal. My goal is to help you be independent. Hebrews 12, 
is a good template for our parenting because it is the template of our Father in heaven as he deals with his children. Hebrews 12, 10 and 11. For they, that is our fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All right, so what's part of my goal? I want them to be holy and righteous. I want them to know the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I want them to share in the holiness of God. This is the way God treats his children, and it's a pattern for us. So I'm looking for holiness and righteousness. Mark 10. Uh, we don't have to read that. You remember um, um, the disciples are fighting because they're saying, who, who get, you know the story. Uh, James and John say, can we have the two primary places in the kingdom? And the rest of the disciples get really mad. Now, are they mad because they say you guys should be servants? No, they're mad because they got the jump on them to get the highest positions. Right? It's like, man, he didn't put that up for bid. You know how that works in factories, right? You put the job up for bid. Well, Jesus didn't do that. You guys don't have a right to get that job. That's We ought to have a right to those jobs. And Jesus said to them, look, in my kingdom, it's not like who's in charge. It's not like the Gentiles when they say jump and you say how high. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the slave of all. You want them to be servants. Jesus was a servant. And we want our children to be like Jesus, right? How many have you ever, how many parents have you ever heard say, I'm proud of my son because he serves a hundred people? That's not typically what we hear. You know, my, my son works for NASA. He's got a thousand people working under him. Okay. How many people does he serve though? That's the greatest. I want people who, I want children who can handle God's word to solve problems and live life in a way that honors God. I want to be able I want them to be able to open the Bible and find the solutions they need in their family. That when there's trouble in the family, they know how to open the scriptures and say, God has the answer here. Let's find it. Kids, their kids, this is how you need to be. Okay? I want I want people who delight in God. This is one of the most convicting verses in the entire Bible for me. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. You let that sink in. Lord, if I lost my wife tomorrow, right? Can I say I desire nothing other than you? Right? Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my treasure forever. Wow. I want children who are going to delight in God, that they say God is enough. Right? So let's put it all together. God's goal is that your children become independent, godly disciples who delight in God, serve others, and make decisions based on God's word. Now that's kind of a reworking of the of the goal. Listen, when I learned the goal, and this is the way I learned it, okay, I'll give you my way of, of the way I said it. I changed it for this. I ought to just go back to what I thought. This is what was constantly ringing in my head. We want godly, independent disciples who love and serve God, love and serve others, and who can handle life by handling God's word. That was ringing through my head all the time with my kids. What do I want with my kids? I want them to be godly, independent disciples who love and serve God, love and serve others, and who can handle life by handling God's Word. And that would be ringing in my ears all the time. That's what I want with my kids. That's what we're aiming for. That is our goal. That's what we have to be be headed for, okay? Okay. You know what strikes me 
is the angel talking to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. And here's what he says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. What makes you the most joyful? The fact that your son is the starting quarterback on the number one ranked team in the state? Or because he's a godly teenager? What is the thing that's going to bring joy and gladness to your heart? And if you don't have a biblical goal, other things will take it. Right? I want my, get, my, I want my son to be valedictorian. Great. But is he going to be godly? What's going to give you the most joy and gladness? Right? That's a good question. And that's the sort of thing you ask in counseling. What's going to, right? You're gathering data. What will really make you happy with your kids? I want a kid who will obey. Well, that's good, but is that all? All right. Do we want a child who's great in the sight of men or a child who's great in the sight of God? It boils down to that. Now, listen to me. This is so important. God's goal must control everything that you do, everything you do in raising your child. Listen, whatever you do for your child, with your child, and to your child must be controlled by that goal. That goal is ringing in your head. I want a godly, independent disciple who loves and serves God, who loves and serves others, and who can handle life by handling God's Word. And so, um, and so someone says to me, oh yeah, right, right, so... You want to take your kids to the zoo. That's controlled by this goal? Absolutely. Why do I want to take them to the zoo? Because I want to build a relationship with my sons and my daughters so that when they're 16 and 17, they'll want to talk to me. They'll want guidance. They'll want me to be their counselor. All right? Whatever you do for your child, with your child, and to your child must be controlled by the goal that God gives you. All discipline and teaching, then, is goal-oriented and not moment-oriented. All right? So all the discipline I do, all the teaching I do, has to be oriented to getting them to that goal. This helped me so much in sorting out when I should discipline and when I should not. Okay, so let me give you an example. Here I am. Phone is rung at 3 o'clock in the morning, as, as it does many times in a pastor's home. There's some emergency. i got to go. I'm out of bed. I'm going where I'm going, to the hospital or something. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm at the hospital with someone who's dying till 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, it looks like she's going to make it. Uh, I need to get to the office because, frankly, it's Thursday and i got to get the bulletin done and the order of service and I've got to preach this Sunday and i got to work all day, not to mention the three people who popped into the office. And I come home and it's 5.30 at night and I am beat. And I walk in the door and there's my three boys jumping on each other, as boys will do, wrestling and turning. And Now, what do you think I want to do at that moment? What do you think I want to do? Stop it. And if you don't stop, I'm going to spank you. Stop it. But what's going through my head? I want independent, godly disciples who love and serve God, who love and serve others, and who can handle life by handling God's Word. What are they doing that's going to keep them from that goal? Nothing. They're not doing anything right now that's going to develop bad habits that will keep them from reaching that goal. Keep your mouth shut, and you be kind to those boys, and you be gracious, and be a dad who may jump in there with them, okay? But don't discipline them, because they're not doing anything that will keep them from reaching that goal. Well, let's say the phone rings, and this is back in the days when the phones were still on the wall. That ages me some. And it's Mrs. Tate, our 95-year-old member, and my wife is talking to her. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, boys, cool it. It's quiet down. Your mom's on the phone. Why? 
because I want them to learn Philippians 2.3. Put others' interests above your own. Right? How are they going to learn to put others' interests above their own? Well, I'm going to help them put their mom's interest above their interest at this moment. All right? So it helps, it helps me sort out all those things. Right? Especially like when they're teenagers and they just do so many irritating things. <laughs> right? When they want to form their rock band and the music is terrible and it's awful and it's... What is screamo? Do you have to do that? But I'm not going to tell them to quit because at this point I don't see how that's going to keep them from reaching the goal. Now we're going to spend time talking about what is music and all that. What are you trying to say with your music? And uh, what's your, what are you trying to get with your music? Because I want them to be able to think critically so that they can reach that goal, so that they can open the Word of God and come up with an idea of what they're doing. Is it biblical or not? You see? All those things are going through my head. It helps me sort those things out. Um, God. Oh, I, like I say, i got so many stories. One time, they got, the boys got this band together. Two of my boys got this band together called The Arson's Daughter. All right? And it was a horrible, it was just awful. But, but somehow they started getting some traction and they got invited to go on a tour. Okay? And it was a tour of the South. Um, and one of the boys was still in high school and he got permission from the principal to miss school to do all that. And I'm thinking, okay. And I talked to them. What kind of venues are you going to be playing? All this sort of stuff. And I've got this thing ringing in my head. All right. Would this be a good experience or not? Okay. I think their venues are all right. Um, I asked them, do you, are you contracted? Do, do you get a part of the door? Do you, are they going to pay you? Yeah. Well, they'll pay us. Well, uh, okay. How? Do you know that? Well, they just said they would. Okay. So I'm thinking, all right, this is where they can learn by experience. Says, Dad, can we borrow the van for this? I said, okay. I'll tell you what. The church pays me 58 cents a mile for mileage, and I'll make a deal with you. You can have it for 50 cents a mile. Okay. All right. You, you realize what you're doing. Yep. Okay. Off they go. They're gone for about a week and a half or two. I can't remember exactly. They come back. I go out. I add up. They make a hundred dollars. The band makes a hundred dollars. <laughs> and so I go out and I tote up all the mileage and say, boys, you owe me nine hundred dollars. All right? You owe me nine hundred dollars. Okay, Dad. And so I'm, they had to pay it either in money or they had to pay it in work of some kind or something. They had to pay that off. And I remember after Christmas, Levi saying to me, Dad, I was hoping you'd kind of forgive that debt as a Christmas present. It's like, nope. <laughs> now, why did I go that direction? Number one, I don't think the tour is going to keep you. I, I knew their spiritual maturity. I knew where they were. I think you can go on this tour, and I don't think you're going to dishonor Christ. Um, you can scream all you want. If people want to pay you for that, great, but they're not... <laughs> Um, all right, I want them to learn responsibility. I want them to learn that, that no one's going to subsidize their dreams, right? I'm not going to subsidize your dreams. You want to be a hard rocking band? Great. But you have to pay the price to do that. Now, I, all of that was going through my head, or my goal is going through the head when I'm doing that. Now, you may have done something different. That's fine. But this is the goal that's helping me make decisions and whether I should let them, when they get to be teenagers, not whether I should discipline, whether I should let them do this or not let them do that. Um, and so um, that's how it helps. Now look, punishment in anger may keep order now or permissiveness may seem easier now, but neither equips for life. If you want to shorten that goal, to something that's real easy to remember, say, everything I do for my kids, with my kids, to, the, to my kids, is to equip them to live for the glory of God in a fallen world. I'm there to equip. I'm not there to get compliance. I want a kid who will obey. That's good, but that's not good enough. 
I don't want a compliant child. I want a child who'll be equipped. Now, does that going to change the way you respond to your children? Absolutely. I want them to be equipped to live life for the glory of God in a fallen world. So everything I'm going to do to them, for them, with them is to equip them so that they're ready to handle the world when they leave. And God's goal gives you a vision for the long haul. It's a long haul with kids. And so you need a vision that will help you keep going for the long haul. we got to keep going. we got to keep going because that's our goal. Okay, be careful that you don't miss the goal. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That does not mean that you never upset, annoy, displease, or deny your child. You know, some Christian kids, they're pretty wise. And they start getting angry and they look at their parents and they say, You know, Mom and Dad, the Bible says don't provoke me to anger. Right? Well, that's not what the Bible means. It doesn't mean that you never upset or annoy. Listen to what it says about King David in uh, 1 Kings 1, 5 and 6. Now Adonijah, the son of Hagit, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Parentheses. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? David never annoyed or displeased his son. And guess what happened? You get a rebellious man, a violent man, who tries to launch a palace coup, who tries to take over the kingdom. Why? Because David never wanted to make him angry. So what he's saying here here is, do not bring up your child in such a way that he becomes an angry person, one characterized by perpetual resentment or impulsive anger. Look at Proverbs chapter 25. Verse 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That is to say, an angry person is like a defenseless city. All right, An angry person, perpetually angry. The police make me angry. My parents make me angry. My boss makes me angry. Right? My wife makes me angry. My children make me angry. It's like a defenseless city. Everybody makes him angry. Now, how is that anger shown? It can be open rebellion, blowing up. It can be passive rebellion, resentment, apathy, a subpar performance, maybe rebellion with a smile, maybe rebellion with silence. But guess what? Many parents accept the passive rebellion, not the open rebellion, but they'll accept the passive rebellion. Right? Calvin, I want you to take out the garbage. I don't want to take out the garbage. You never asked Levi Arians to do it. I don't want to do it. Make them do it. Hey, you're not going to get away with that. Yance, take out the garbage. All right, I'll take out the garbage. He pulls out of the can and kicks open the door and walks out and slams it in. Well, nothing is said. Why? The garbage made it out. But, That kind of attitude will not get you to the goal, will it? And so I can't accept the latter, right? Because that's going to keep them from reaching the goal. How can you raise an exasperated child? So we're running out of time, so I'm going to just kind of run, okay? Be a permissive, passive parent. You know what? If you want, if you want a child who's angry, don't do anything. Don't do anything. I would suspect that we're seeing an explosion of anger in shootings, in road rage, not because people were abused, but because no one told them no. All right? Um, Oftentimes, dads are too lazy to be leaders. They don't want the risk of leadership. I don't want to say things that will displease my children. I know that feeling. I've thought the same thing. Proverbs 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Um, The rod and reproof, 29.15, The rod and reproof gives wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. A passive, permissive parent is headed for trouble. That's how you raise an exasperated child. Look at David. Look at Jacob. Jacob was also one who didn't seem to intervene with his kids. Remember? So... Two of his boys, um, Simeon and Levi, wipe out an entire village. Right? Um, be an authoritarian parent. What does that mean? 
be negative. Ephesians 4.29 says, don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouth, not meaning dirty jokes, but language that cuts. But language that gives grace to those who listen, that gives solutions. So don't be, if you complain, you're a lousy leader. If you're going to be a leader, you're not going to point out what's wrong. You're going to point out how to deal with it, what to do about that wrong, how you can. I'm going to minister grace, both the willingness and the ability to do something. All right, be a perfectionist. Colossians 3.21 says, A child who does not hear praise loses hope. Um, That's not what Colossians 3.21 says. Colossians 3.21 says, um, Don't raise them in such a way that you take the wind out of their sails. It was my... Pastor Good, who said, a child who does not hear praise loses hope. Don't listen. Proverbs eighteen thirteen. He who listens, he who answers before he listens, that's his folly and his shame. Um, Fifteen. Get knowledge. Seventeen. The first one to present his case seems right till the second comes and questions him. Do you jump to conclusions? Do you not listen? Or you have too many rules. Boy, look at what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, you bind people with these loads of rules and you don't lift a finger to help them. Don't be like the Pharisees. And also remember that rules never change a heart. Only the gospel can do that. Don't think that if you have a bunch of rules, that's going to produce a child who loves and serves God. All right? Um Rules can never change a heart. Only the gospel can. Be an absentee parent. If you want an exasperated child, then be an absentee parent. That happens not only when you're gone, but you're watching television. You're never taking time with your children. You're always shuffling them off to their activities. Children need parents. Be an angry parent. That's definitely going to produce an exasperated child. Handle your anger incorrectly. James 1.19, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Be slow to speak and quick to hear. All right? When you fly off the handle, that's not going to produce righteousness. All right? Allow anger to linger. Ephesians 4.26 and 27 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. The only thing the devil needs to destroy a family is for you to go to bed angry with someone else in your family. And when we allow our anger to linger, we oftentimes do that on purpose so the child thinks he has to win back our favor. That'll produce an exasperated child. Don't solve problems with your spouse. If there's constant tension between you and your spouse, that can do it as well. Present the wrong model, right? I don't model what it means to live a Colossians 3.12, compassion, gentle, kindness, humility. I don't love my wife. You present the wrong model and um, you present, you'll, you'll have an exasperated child. When you have no grace in your home, too many homes run on law. Do what's right, you'll be rewarded. Don't mess up or else. Now, is there a place for law? Absolutely. But law never changes a human heart. But when you run on law in homes like that, parents are sure to tell their children when they've done wrong, and that's about all they talk about. That's all they recall, and that's all they tell other people is all the wrong things their kids have done. There's little place for repentance and little hope for forgiveness and restored relationships. They act as if your wrongdoing is all there is. Parents have the attitude, I'll love you if you perform well. If you do what you're supposed to do, then I'll accept you. Now, that does not mean I'm going to love you unconditionally. I actually hate that. Don't worry, son. No matter what you're like, I'll always love you. So go ahead and live a godless life. I'll still love you. Well, I will love you, but I'm not. that doesn't mean I'm just going to accept whatever you do. I want to love them in such a way that I'm going to show them affection not just when they do well, but I'm going to find every opportunity I can to show them affection. Right? Um, some parents, all they do is they talk about what wrong you've done, here's the consequences, rather than also saying, son, I love you. You ever tell your son you love him? When I see parents like this, I say, do you ever have fun with your children? Do you ever go out and just have fun with them? Do you ever tell them you love them? Do you ever show them affection? 
Okay? Show affection as much as you possibly can. Um, the grace of a loving relationship and of affection will encourage obedience. I mean, that's how God acts towards us, right? What trains us to say no to ungodliness? Not law. Grace. Titus 2, 12 through 14. The grace of God that has appeared to all men trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And so grace must be in your home if you want to see children who will grow and change. All right, so, concluding then. God expects men to lead in raising the children. Beware of exasperating your children. God has a goal for your children that guides everything you do to them, with them, and for them. Okay? Now, I hope you've gotten enough here, and you've got to, obviously, you're going to have to think these things through. But those are the things you're looking for in counseling. Those are the things that always you've got to be have radar up for. Okay, you're dismissed.